We are in the book of Revelation this semester, and we're still in chapter one tonight. I don't know how many of you remember when Avatar came out, the movie, The Blue People. I, I can't remember the circumstances surrounding me going to see that movie, but I went to see it, and it was, it was in 3D, and I don't know if you remember, but not that many movies were coming out in 3D back then. Um, I mean, 3D is not a new thing, but it, it, it wasn't in at that time. But when you watch something in 3D and you put those glasses on, it's an experience. There's a new depth. There's a new depth to the, to the contours of what you're seeing. There's a new depth to the colors, um, to the texture. Uh, you feel like you're in the movie. It's almost like virtual reality in a sense, right? But the moment, we all do it, right? When you're sitting in a 3D, 3D movie, what do we all do? I want to see what it looks like without the glasses, right? We all pull down the glasses to see what it looks like. And it's a mess, right? When you take the 3D glasses off when you're watching the movie, it's a mess. It's jumbled. It's fractured. It's pixelated. It's blurry, right? It's only with the 3D glasses that you can kind of make sense of what's going on on the screen. And you get that beauty and that depth that you're meant to get uh, in the 3D experience. When it comes to Christianity, and this isn't really a surprise to anyone, but when it comes to Christianity, Jesus, right, Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be God, um, Jesus is the focal point of the entire system of that religion, Christianity, right? Jesus is the focal point. But I would suggest to you that all of us have a problem, whether we're Christian or not, we all have this problem that whether... We realize they're not. Uh, there's something that we do. We tend to try to focus on Jesus or look at Jesus, if you'll go with the analogy, without the 3D glasses. And we all, in some sense, have this vision of Jesus that maybe comes to mind just because of how we heard about him growing up or uh, how he was taught, whatever. Uh, and the vision actually is a little blurry. It's a little pixelated. It's a little jumbled. And for whatever reason, whether our circumstances, our past, how we feel in the moment, uh, we're kind of just left piecemeal putting it together and kind of making the image um, of what Jesus is in our own mind, our own hearts, right? So the question tonight, and I think this is a, the question that John, a question that John would like for us to think as, we, as he takes us on this journey is, how do we change that? How do we change how we see Jesus? How do we bring it back into focus? Well, I would suggest to you that the Bible over and over and says to look to the Bible, to look to Scripture. And that's what we do here week in and week out, and especially what we're going to do here in the book of Revelation. We saw last week that John wants not just to tell us something, John wants to show us something. And so tonight, he says the first thing that he saw was magnificent. And it was Jesus So that's what we're going to read about tonight. So we're going to start in verse 9 here, Revelation 1. Let me pray uh, before we read this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time to have it open and to read it uh, and to meditate on it. Father, we pray that by your spirit you would speak into our hearts. Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what otherwise we would be blind and deaf to. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Read this with me, Revelation 1, starting verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the count of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So last week... John, uh, we learn that John was given this revelation. He wants to show it to us. He wants to pull back the curtain for us the way that the curtain was pulled back for him that we could see reality as it really is through spiritual eyes. Everybody, if you've been around Christians or the church or whatever, right? Everybody knows this word gospel associated with Christianity, the good news. The gospel is we need Jesus. Right? That's the gospel. We need Jesus, and Jesus is here to satisfy our every need. So the question is, how do we get there? Well, I would say John would answer that, and the answer is out of the gate as he begins this book. We need Jesus. How do we get there? We need to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. Two things I've got for you tonight. Two points, two weeks in a row. What is happening to me? Um, But two things stand out to frame this vision of Jesus for us. And it's two words that I really want to stick in your head for the rest of the semester. Transcendence and imminence. Transcendence and imminence. Okay, so the first one here, as we look at this vision of Jesus, and maybe this is the one uh, that kind of comes most naturally as we read and hear this vision, is transcendence. Okay? Without any context, right? Without any context, if, we ha- if I stood up in this room and said, I want you to close your eyes and picture Jesus. I just want to think for a second, what would, you, what would you think of? Without any context of like that we're studying Revelation or anything, if I just said, I want you to close your eyes and picture Jesus, right? I'm willing to bet that not one person in this room would have thought of the image that we read in these verses that we read tonight. 
Right? I don't think this would have come to any of our minds. You might have thought of long hair. You might have thought of a beard. But I don't think you would have thought of it being white as wool. I don't think you would have thought about his face shining like a light. Uh, maybe you would think about sandals. Uh, maybe you would think about scars in his hands and in his feet. Hopefully you would not think of blonde, blue-eyed, Aryan nation Jesus. Because that's not a real one. Um, maybe uh, you'd think with our good friend Ricky Bobby, you think of sweet baby Jesus. Um, and you thank him for your cold Pepsi that you had earlier. Nobody drinks Pepsi. But anyway, um, I don't know what you would have pictured. How do we understand, how do we begin to understand what John saw as he saw Jesus? Well, I think the first thing to really think about, and, and this is really key, again, we kind of, we alluded to this last week, but think about who John is writing to. Remember that John has real names and real faces in his mind. As he writes this vision and as he mails it to these seven churches in Asia Minor, right? The names of which we read there in verse 11. Real people facing real problems, living real lives in the real world. That is who this vision was for. So therefore, it's also for us. Because we are real people living real lives with real problems. This vision is also for us. And there's basically two kinds of people, and we're really going to see this as we look at the letters to the seven churches next week. There's kind of, you can boil down two, generally speaking, two kinds of people that John is writing to. The first group would be the group that Christianity just wasn't working anymore for them. What do I mean? Because you're talking about a people that lived in a time that the persecution of Christians, that world history, when you take a world history class and you talk about the persecution of Christians, you're talking about people that are living in the time as that is cranking up. Christians are starting to be rounded up and slaughtered for following this man, Jesus. They're considered rebels and they're considered people that need to be dealt with, right? And for them, Christianity's not working. What do I mean? They've heard about this Jesus that lived for them, that died for them, and that lives again. But all of a sudden, all their friends and all their family members who love that Jesus are starting to be murdered. And they're starting to wonder, is this Christianity thing really working for us? Life was hard, even brutal. And John admits as much in verse 9. You look at verse 9 there. He says, I, John, your brother. How? In your brother and partner in the tribulation. Now, if you have any revelation baggage that you bring into this room, that's a big word. And guess what? He doesn't say the tribulation that's coming in two or three thousand years. He says in the tribulation right now. More than that in a few weeks. It was a brutal and hard life that these people were living and they're having to ask the question, is this Christianity thing worth it, right? Another group of people that we'll see next week in the letter to Laodicea is a group of people that, for them, Christianity is really just no longer compelling. Yeah, we've heard about that Jesus guy, but I got a job. I got a family. I got kids to feed. Maybe I'll show up to that church thing, whatever y'all do sometimes, right? It's those people who had one foot in and one foot out. And they're thinking to themselves, yeah, that Jesus thing would be great, but... And you fill in the blank, right? So that's kind of generally the two people that John's writing to. And it's to both groups of people that over and over and over again in this letter, John is going to say, you have got to see this. You have got to see this. And tonight he says, you need to see this Jesus. I saw him. You need to be consumed by him. You need to be captivated by this vision. 
You know, it's interesting to note, not one of the Gospels, not one of the four Gospels even hints at suggesting what Jesus of Nazareth looked like. But right out of the gate, John, in Revelation, he knew what Jesus of Nazareth looked like. He was friends with him, right? Right out of the gate, he says, you want to know what he looks like? Come and see. This Jesus. And he says, behold him. Just to break down the vision, start at verse 12 and 13 and, and go down with me. What does he see? Well, the first thing you see that he sees, he says he sees one like a son of man. You remember last week what I said? Yes, Revelation is full of images. But you've got to remember it is full of Bible images. Almost every image that John brings up in this letter is an image that you can find reference to somewhere else in the Bible. One like a son of man. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fiery furnace because they would not bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And when they are thrown into the furnace, the people look into the middle of that furnace and they don't see three people, they see four. And they see one like a son of of man walking with those three. Later on in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has, ding, 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 a vision. And you know what he sees? One like a son of man. John is not making this up. John saw what Daniel saw. That's what he's telling you. Bible images. He has a long robe with a golden sash. We had our call to worship from Isaiah 6 about God and how his robe filled the temple It's what John sees. This is royalty. He has white hair. Proverbs uh, 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory, right? It's talking about how um, we get wise with old age. I hope that's true. Um, He has white hair. This is a man full of wisdom. He has eyes like flame of fire. Eugene Peterson says it best. The eyes of Jesus don't look at you. They look through you. Sorry, not through, into. Eyes of Jesus don't look at you, they look into you. He has eyes like flames of fire. He has feet of bronze. Again, Daniel, one of the things Daniel does in Daniel chapter 2, he interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream of a statue made of different kinds of metals, and this statue has feet of clay. And all the different pieces of the statue represent the kingdoms of the world, and we're told that 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 statue will be broken. Its uh, feet are made of iron and clay, and it falls apart. This Jesus, his feet are made of bronze. His kingdom will last forever. His voice. Did you notice that when John, John doesn't say, I turned to listen to the voice. What does he say? I turned to see the voice that was speaking. This voice cuts you to the core and it is meant to bring you to attention. He has a two-edged sword coming from his mouth. Does that mean Jesus at this moment, as he sits at the right hand of God, if you were to see him right now, that he has a sword, like in the circus, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth? No. Paul says the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. This Jesus we're being called to attention to. His words are the very words of God. His face shone like the sun, right? Just like Moses, when Moses would go into the Holy of Holies and meet with God, he would come out and his face would be glowing. But the thing about this Jesus, it's not a, it's not a borrowed shining. It's one that emanates from him. All right, so that's the vision, right? So what? So what? 
What, what is that? What am I supposed to make of that? Am I supposed to like break it down? Am I supposed to draw a picture? Am I supposed to make all these connections? You gotta remember, the first people that heard this letter, they would have heard it. They would not have read it. They would not have time to outline every little thing of the vision of Jesus. They would have been overwhelmed by the big picture. So what? I would suggest to you the so what is answered in verse 17. John sees this vision of Jesus and what does he do? He falls down as if he were dead. And we go, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? I don't know about you, um, I love Braveheart. I don't know if y'all remember that movie uh, with Mel Gibson. Freedom! Um, Gladiator uh, with Russell Crowe. I love those movies, right? And I love this vision of Jesus and thinking of Jesus as this like fierce warrior who, who goes out and fights for his people, right? But what does John do? John sees this Jesus and he falls down as dead. John, the disciple who is referred to in the Gospels as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The implication throughout the Gospels is that there is no one person that had a more intimate one-on-one relationship with Jesus of Nazareth than John. And he sees this Jesus whom he knew and whom he loved. And he falls down as if he were dead. What do we do with that? This is the thing I think John gets when he sees this Jesus. When he sees this Jesus, John knows that he is undone. He's undone. You know when you've truly seen and met this Jesus, when from your very core, you know that you are undone. And so, just at this point, this is the biggest point of the night, the transcendence. Because I think this is the one we need to think about the most. Is this, or does this, come close to the Jesus that you see? When you think about Jesus, whether it's the Jesus you have relationship, the Jesus you're wondering whether you should have relationship, or the Jesus you heard about and maybe you want to know some more, is this the Jesus you see? Or is your picture a little bit fractured, a little bit jumbled, a little bit blurry? Because here's the thing, we all have, we, if you've been around Christianity, the church, Christians at all, we all have some picture of Jesus that comes readily to mind. But what comes to mind? And I would suggest to you that what usually comes to mind is the Jesus that we're comfortable with. I suggest to you that when John saw this Jesus, he was not comfortable. He fell down as if he was dead. Because, you know, we love the Jesus that spoke to the promiscuous woman at the well, right? He broke every social convention that existed in that day. When at that well, the promiscuous woman whom he knew was promiscuous, he initiates conversation with her. In Jewish culture, men did not talk to women in public, especially scandalous women. We love that Jesus. We love the Jesus that catch, uh, that saves the woman in the well, uh, the woman in the woman in the well, the woman <laughs> caught in adultery. Right? We love it when he we, he saves her from stoning by basically giving the middle finger to all the self righteous Pharisees. We love that Jesus. We love the Jesus who dines with scoundrels and drunkards. We love uh, the Jesus who bucks the traditional right that really wants Jerusalem to be great again. Right? We love that Jesus. 
What do you do with the Jesus who made a whip of cords, we're told by John at the beginning of his gospel, went into the court of the temple and started driving people out in fury? Not sinful fury, but fury nonetheless. What do you do with the Jesus who the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler, he comes, he's seeking, he wants Jesus. Jesus, just tell me what I got to do and I'll follow you. And the one thing that Jesus knows that this man cannot live without is his wealth. And you know what Jesus tells him? If you want to follow me, give everything you have away. And the rich young ruler goes away sad. What do we do with that, Jesus? What do we do with the Jesus who in John, I'd say in John 6 or John 8, who has a group of people that disagree with him? And you know what he tells them? Your father is the devil. That's a great evangelism strategy, by the way. <laughs> what do we do with that, Jesus? Again, really hone in on this one. This is the biggest one. So many of you, and this is nothing new, but I hear it and I feel it and I'm around it so much with y'all. So many of you, you could put it a million different ways, but you crave, let's just say, a fresh word from God. Or a fresh moment, or a fresh something, right? And I just have a one. I just have one question: Where are you looking for that? Because I'm going to suggest to you, you are never going to come anywhere close to anything like this. Right there, in print, in God's Word. The one thing Jesus most definitely is not is comfortable and boring. Those are two words that could never describe him. Comfortable and boring. But see, the problem that we have, y'all, is that the truth is that we're usually trying to make him just that. We want Jesus to be comfortable, and we do it in so many ways. How are ways we do it? We compartmentalize him. That's one way we make him comfortable. What do I mean? It's really easy to be all about Jesus here in a big group of people where we have friends, right? It's really easy, easy to be about Jesus in our community groups or at church or in conversation when Jesus comes up, right? But somehow, oddly, he finds no room in my nightlife, or my weekend life, or my home life. Interesting how that happens. It's interesting how I'm able to separate him completely from my dating relationship. Well, no, he doesn't believe in Jesus, but he'll come around. We try to make him comfortable with our passions, right? Look, Jesus doesn't care how obsessed I am with grades. He wants me to work hard. Look, Jesus doesn't care how little I eat and how much I work out. Or Jesus doesn't care how much I eat when no one else knows. We try to make him comfortable with our comparing. Because look, Jesus definitely is just as irritated as I am with those people. Jesus hates those self-righteous pricks, right? There's always someone, such a hypocrite, who drinks more than I do, who's crazier about girls than I am, who's, that person is so self-righteous. Y'all understand how self-righteous that statement is, right? Anyway, we make him comfortable with how we interact with doubters and skeptics, right? We love your philosophical questions. We will talk about the problem of evil and evolution and creation all day long. Please don't ask us about Jesus and Nazareth. Those are more fun. 
That's precisely why John gives us this vision of Jesus. When you see this Jesus in all His majesty, in all His glory, in all His splendor, in all His holiness, what you begin to see is that it is all that matters. That's why we need to see Jesus. Because if I see that Jesus, I can't separate Him from anything in my life because I know that He sees and speaks into all of it. I know that I can't care about anything more than Him because how can I even take my eyes off of Him? I know that I can't compare myself to others because in light of His holiness, I know that I am completely undone. So how in the world would I even begin to compare myself to someone else? And I know that I can't dismiss this Jesus in favor of anything else because He truly is the first and the last. And so therefore, He takes up everything in between. Here's the thing. Again, this is the biggest point, I promise. The transcendent terrifies us because we know the moment that we open our eyes to it, we know what it demands. Every single ounce of our being. And we don't want to give it. We need this Jesus. But the natural question to that, we need this Jesus... So how in the world am I supposed to get that? If John, who laid his head on Jesus' breast on his last night of life, falls down dead, how am I supposed to touch that Jesus? Glad you asked. Second thing here is imminence. John falls down undone at the sight of this Jesus. But what happens? But what happens? Look at verse 17. John, it's me. It's Jesus. You don't have to be afraid. We need to see this Jesus in all of his transcendence, his holiness, his glory, his majesty. But we also need to know, we also need to see. And we also need to feel that He's with us. That He's near to us. And that He wants to be. (laughs) Because He's imminent. He is completely transcendent. But in the same moment, He is completely imminent. Near. Verse 13, I hope you didn't miss this. um, Yeah, 12 and 13. John sees Jesus, but where does he see him? In the midst of the lampstands. We're told by the end exactly what the lampstands are. They're the seven churches. We'll get into numbers a bunch this semester, but... Here it is. Numbers are not for your coding or your calculations or your counting in the Bible. In all of Jewish culture, they're not used that way. uh, Numbers in the Bible are symbolic. And seven over and over and over and over and over and over again is used to symbolize divine completion. Seven churches, what is a divinely complete seven churches? It's the entire church. Where is Jesus? In the midst of the church. In other words, in the midst 
of his people. He's in their midst. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. Y'all, here it is. This is, in a nutshell, the theme, the story of the entire Bible. Do not miss this one. This is the theme and the story of the entire Bible and also history itself. A creator God who will move heaven and earth to be with his people. That is it. It's what we lost in the Garden of Eden. It's what he promised uh, at, the, at Mount Sinai. It's why they built a tent. It's why they later built a temple. It's why Jesus became flesh. It's why he sent his spirit when he left. And it's why he will come again. Because the goal of all history from eternity past to eternity future is that God is going to be with his people. That is it. You wait until we get to the end of this book. You can flip to the end later. That's imminence. Let me wrap all this up. Let's tie it all together. Let's tie it all together. We need this transcendent Jesus. And we need this imminent Jesus. And the beautiful part of the story is they perfectly meet and are fulfilled in this Jesus. John knows that what we need as real people living real lives in the real world with real suffering and real struggles, he knows that what we need is at the end of the day to know that we are not alone. At the end of the day, if you follow the tethers of all of your struggles and all the problems, I think you would agree that your greatest fear is that one day you'll be alone. And John knows our greatest need is to know that we're not alone. But not only are we not alone, the one who is ever present with us is the first and the last. He's the one who is alive. He's the one who died. And he's the one who lives forevermore. And, by the way, he's the one that holds the keys to death and Hades itself because he defeated it. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. Please hear it. Will that make whatever pain or anger or doubt that you brought into this room tonight, will that truth make that magically disappear? I wish it would. I really wish it would. But Jesus doesn't promise that it will. The Bible doesn't promise that it will. But you better believe that that truth that He is with you will totally reframe it. It will totally change how you see it and how you feel it and how you live in it day to day. Some of you are angry at God. And I really want you to hear this. That's okay. You know why? Because God can handle it. He can. The thing is, is if you really think about it, some of you are angry at God because He has not followed through on a promise that He never made. One of the clearest promises that Jesus did make about following Him comes in John 16, verse 33. 
It's the night he's betrayed, actually. He tells his disciples this. This is the clearest thing, the clearest promise that Jesus says about what we will experience in this life if we follow him. And he says this. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not might, not maybe, not depending on where you live, what part of town you live, what school you go to, what Greek house you join, what campus ministry you ended up going to, what denomination you prefer. In this world, no qualification, you will have tribulation. Do you remember the next thing he said? But take heart. I have overcome the world. There are a lot of stories in this room tonight. A lot. And I could spend every hour of every day for the next how many ever weeks of the semester, and I won't even begin to scratch the surface. I don't know why he won't take away your depression. I don't know why you wake up sad, you eat sad, and you go to sleep sad. I can tell you I know what it feels like. But I don't know why he won't take it away. I don't know why your friend committed suicide. I don't know why your parents divorced. I don't know why he gave cancer to that person that you love. I don't know why your family's falling apart. I don't know why you can't just stop doing that thing that you really don't want to do anymore. I don't know why you can be surrounded by 200 people and feel like the loneliest person on the planet. I don't know why. But I do know this. And it's not just a cliche. Jesus is with you. He is. This Jesus... (laughs) Is with you. This Jesus, this Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, John is saying he is with you. Now, why do I say this Jesus? Because of this. Some of you, you get the transcendent part. You just get it. I get that he is totally beyond me, he's totally above me, he's totally holier than me, he is totally more perfect than me. You get it so much, and you just know that there's no way that he has any time to worry about what's going on with you. And what you need to hear tonight is not only does he know what is going on with you, he cares. So much so that he entered into it himself and he let it kill him. Some of you, you get the eminence part. You get it. You get, he's here, he's with me, he knows, he cares, I know it, but let's get real. He's not going to do anything about it. And you have to see, he is going to do something about it. And not only is he going to do something about it, But when he does, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh will see it. Because this is the King, the Creator, and Sustainer of the entire cosmos. Better believe he's going to do something about it. I want to end with this. Lion witch in the wardrobe. As the children have found themselves in Narnia and they're trying to make their way through this new land and they don't really know much about it and they finally find safety in the house of the beavers and they hear about this great king, Aslan, who's making all things new. 
But for the first time, they've gotten word that Aslan is not a man. He's a lion. And this is what Beaver tells the children. He says, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, and they're either braver than most, or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This Jesus, if we see him, he terrifies us. And he should. But at the same time, he touches us. He says, I'm here. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to see you tonight. Father, we, we realize that all of our deepest longings, they're all pointing us to this man. And we need Him. Would You give Him to us? Would You show Him to us? Would You give us ears to hear? Would You give us eyes to see? But above all, would You give us hearts to believe? That He really is the King. And that He really is good. And He really is here. We pray these things in His name. Amen.